This is History 605, where we talk about everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, state historian for the state of South Dakota. With me today on the show is Jerry Boychuk. He is professor of political science at University of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He's currently uh, researching about the suffrage movements in the United States and in Canada, and with a focus on the Great Plains uh, across both sides of the border. Last year, uh, Jerry published an article with us in our special issue on suffrage issues that I thought was really quite compelling. So I'm glad to have, have you here, Jerry, on the program today. Well, thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. The historical question that you asked is, why did, in 1918, suffrage pass in South Dakota when it had failed five times before? And I think your article really explores the conditions upon which the politics worked. And so I'd like to kind of pull that apart a little bit and have you kind of go into what was the difference between uh, when suffrage passes uh, at a popular vote in 1918 compared to when it uh, had been up on the ballot and considered in the Constitution from the very beginning in 1890? Yes, certainly. I guess the, the, very, the question at the very broadest level really is why and you know, under what circumstances do people, like male voters, male legislators, um, who monopolize political power or enjoy political privilege ever willingly give it up? Because they had to, and you know, they had to pass the the referendum in in uh, 1918, and South Dakota is a very compelling um, case study. As you mentioned, suffrage had failed in five previous elections: 1890, 1898, 1910, uh, suffrage referendum in South Dakota. You know, it's it's not good for the cause. It's not mm-hmm. pushing this forward um, at a national level, and so that really is the question. Then, how do you get you know how do you get victory in 1918? And um, the I, I would say the dominant existing sort of uh, interpretation is that after after the failed suffrage um, referendum in 1910 that the, the suffragists took on new leadership. Uh, Mary Shields, Mary Mamie Shields Pyle, uh, became the leader. Right. They reorganized under the South Dakota Universal Franchise League. And the big strategic difference was that they, they separated female suffrage from the issue of uh, temperance and prohibition. Right. And tried to um, make those as distinct as possible because they felt that temperance was hurting the suffragist cause. Now, you're still left with the question of what happened, you know, between 1914, 1916, and 1918. And the, the dominant interpretation really is, is fairly linear, and that is that suffragists engaged in hard work. They, they continually made their arguments about why suffrage was, was just and morally right, and that by 1918 they had convinced enough male voters um, that that was the case in order to prevail. Now, one of the challenges that that interpretation faces is that actually 
as a proportion of the male voting age population, fewer males voted in favor of suffrage in 1918 than they did in 1916. That is, there were actually fewer votes in favor of suffrage, and yet suffrage passed in 1918. And so the question is, you know, how, how does one explain that or what does that mean? And basically, um, what had happened between 1916 and 1918 is that the you know, voter turnout dropped very significantly. And it appears that voter turnout dropped in a way that those, those missing male voters tended to skew towards the kind of voter that voted no against suffrage. So suffrage won not because more males were voting for it, but less male electors were coming out to vote against it. And there are reasons to think that seems to be a reasonable uh, explanation. There were a lot of factors that played into the depressed turnout in 1918, including Uh the H1N1 pandemic, also the Spanish flu, uh, the war context, and including in the war context, were probably at least some degree of concern regarding um, anti-alien hostility at the polls. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, real, um, the real change in 1918, which makes it very difficult to compare with, with earlier vote outcomes, is that um, while suffrage had, was already slated to be on the ballot, in March of 1918, the governor, um, with, without, giving, without consulting with the uh, suffragist leadership, without any notification to the suffragist leadership, decided to um, add on an alien disenfranchisement component, uh, with, which would not allow, at that time, uh, non-citizens were allowed to vote as long as they'd taken out first papers, which said that within seven years they would, um, they would become citizens. Mm. And there was a lot of concern around that, and so the governor Norbeck mm-hmm. um, put that together with the um, the women's suffrage motion in a in a amendment called Amendment E, right. and that that was a you know a huge change to the dynamics of of what was happening with female suffrage. The female suffrage leadership, you know, initially was was horrified. And thought that that would uh, um, would mean that uh, suffrage would not pass, and they had good reason for thinking that. And yet, ultimately, it uh, it would. So, so that's um, it, it's a much less linear story right. than um, so linked to to the um, linking of those two of those two different uh, uh, propositions. Right. What was it's not quite clear, and perhaps it's lost to us. What was Governor Norbeck's sincere view about women voting? Did he was he a big um, advocate for it, or was he on the fence, or was he where was he at? Well, what was very clear is that um, he was certainly would communicate between March and um, uh, March 1918 and the election in 1918. He would communicate favorably with. The, with the state uh, suffrage leadership and, and give his support to suffrage. But as it turns out, he did not do so publicly. Even when at the special session in March 1918, when, when suffrage was linked with the alien disenfranchisement component of Amendment E, 
he never explicitly spoke in favor of female suffrage. Mm. So he was being very cagey on the issue. Um, and it seems, it strains credulity, I think, to believe that he did it, he made that linkage just to help ensure female suffrage. And yet the, the state suffrage leadership uh, often took the position that that was the intent, that it was in order to get suffrage, that it, the two were linked to get suffrage passed. Now, um, what seems, in my opinion, more credible is that suddenly, as of, you know, um, as after 1916, when the Nonpartisan League, the NPL, uh, took power in North Dakota, mm -hmm. uh, in South Dakota there was increasing concern about the possibility that the same thing could happen there. Right. And so it really appears that the governor was trying to fend off the entire special session um, was was intended, very clearly intended, to um, basically appropriate the NPL um, uh, platform. Mm -hmm. And and you know one of one the NPL was known to be favorable towards suffrage, and Governor Norbeck knew that if they just had an amendment on suffrage and an amendment on alien disenfranchisement, that the NPL could support the suffrage amendment and probably remain neutral on the alien disenfranchisement uh -huh. uh, amendment or, or even, you know, argue against it. So by, by linking them, he took away their opportunity to pick and choose between those two. Okay. They either had to support Amendment E, which in which case they would be supporting suffrage, but they would be um, it would be an affront to their own kind of support base, which was stronger among immigrant voters. Uh -huh. Or they could oppose Amendment E, in which case they would face the wrath of the suffragists. Right, right. And so it was a it was very clearly um, politically motivated. So it's a it's a shrewd move by him to to make life hard for a competing political party that's trying to emerge. Yes, in the scene. and it wasn't. Um, I think in, in subsequent sort of historical analysis, there's, uh, there's often attributions of sort of longer, slightly longer term uh, political gains. For example, if, if it had, well, having passed, mm -hmm. enemy aliens wouldn't, wouldn't be able to vote or aliens wouldn't be able to vote, and that presumably would have helped him. But I think, I think it looks very clearly he was just focused on November 1918. Okay. They were concerned that, they were, uh, that this was a serious, serious challenge, and they were just worried about the next election. Right. You know, all, all these things, the 1916, 17, 18, 1919, uh, World War I is going on. There's a pandemic that's going on. Uh, immigrants... Uh, are an issue all over the country as well as South Dakota. Um, this persistent issue about um, women's voting rights as well as prohibition, which continues mm -hmm. into the 1930s. Um, that's a lot of kind of stuff to deal with if you're a governor or senator or just a normal human being trying to make your way through and, and you see um, the signs uh, about women's suffrage that says, uh, playing on the state's motto, um, uh, under God the people rule, women are people too, uh, which is a pretty effective way to get a lot of people on your side. Um, 
And it seems to me that, that the thing that came out of your article is that Norbeck very delicately, very quietly, and very shrewdly figured out how to punch back at an opposing party, win the election, and push women's suffrage over the top. All, all in one fell swoop. I was, <laughs> you, you kind of have to be impressed with the man in that regard. You know, I, I, whether one agrees, you know, mm-hmm. agrees or disagrees with his politics, his or his positions on either of you know the alien disenfranchisement um, or women's suffrage, there is no question that he was a brilliant politician and a master strategist, mm-hmm. and and also. Um, his ability to to uh, work with people um, was, was, as you say, very very impressive. Mm-hmm. So you know, one of the most um, one of the most significant uh, findings uh, that I had from my research in terms of actual evidence was that he, um, in June, and this is nowhere I have never seen this anywhere in any published historical record. Um, so I, I really do believe it's novel. Mm-hmm. In June, um, uh, Shields Pyle notes in a letter to to Renee Stevens from the National American Women's Suffrage Association that Governor Norbeck unexpectedly, on a Tuesday afternoon, dropped in to the SDUFL offices to meet with with uh, Mamie Shields Pyle. Right. Now, no one knows what they talked about at that meeting. Uh-huh. But what we do know is that that day she sends out a series of letters to um, Mitchell Palmer in the federal government, um, to uh, Dwayne, uh, Doan Robinson mm. um, at the, as the... Um, My predecessor. I believe he was a state historian. <laughs> yes. So your pre- predecessor asking a series of questions about um, aliens, non-citizens voting, numbers, what could be done about it. And it is very, very hard to believe that that, wasn't, that, that was just coincidence. Right. It looks very clearly that she, that she unexpectedly met with the governor. He stopped in, and, and my guess would be probably made these suggestions because it's not even clear how um, how Pyle would know, for example, to contact Mitchell Palmer and the federal government um, oh, right. in the first instance. Right. Now, this office was in Huron? Yes. Yeah. And he, he, was, he, was, um, he was campaigning. He just happened to be on his way back, and he stopped in Huron. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I wonder if you—what is the— um, collaboration or um, like-mindedness of being opposed to suffrage and being opposed to or for prohibition, or if I uh, may have messed those up. I mean, it it seems that they are often, the suffragists are also clamoring to take away people's alcohol. Yes. And that that is what is hanging up so many elections, is that these immigrant Germans, doggone it! These people aren't going to take away my beer, right? Or other things. So absolutely, and it was seen to be a, um, uh, you know, it, it was seen to be a, a mainstay of the, of their cultural practices. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the big thing that changed between 1916 and 18 on that score is that in 1916, prohibition passed. Right. 
Um, now, that said, there was no question that the anti-prohibition forces believed that that could be revoked. They, they did not think that was, you know, the last word on the issue. Mm-hmm. And they still, I'm sure, would have had concerns about, uh, about female voting mm-hmm. and that it may lead to prohibition. So the two, the two always remained uh, fairly tightly linked, even when suffragists tried to de-link them. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference was that uh, prior to ni- 1910, prior to um, Pyle becoming the president of the SDUFL, the, it was the suffragists themselves who were linking them. Right. And, and you know, they stopped after that. So, 1940, you know, there's this new kind of new era, 1914, 16, 18, where the suffragists themselves are uh, disavowing mm-hmm. their, you know, a prohibitionist stance. Right. And in, in that, that, that was a big shift where um, prior to that, there was a, a big schism between the national leadership who wanted that kind of separation and the state leadership who were absolutely committed to temperance. And so, so that is one place where the state and national leadership came together was in that post-1910 period mm-hmm. on the strategic issue of, um, of separating temperance and female suffrage. Mm -hmm. Well, in all of this, of course, most folks would look back at that today and say, well, men just didn't want women to vote, but we've just gone through all this, all these complications that talk about how it's, it was kind of, there's a lot going on and it's more than just kind of a sexist deal. Is that? uh, Mm -hmm. Well, and the one, the one thing, as I say, with, with the results in 1918, there, there's no concrete evidence just looking at the results mm-hmm. that more men were convinced that women should vote. That's true, because of the depression yeah, of the other vote And those complicated patterns right. of turnout of who came out and who didn't. Right. Well, when there's a war on and there's men in Europe instead of home voting, then <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was absolutely. a good time to maybe push it across. <laughs> that, was the, that was the rationale for the special session. Yeah. The special session. The, the, the public did not want a special session. And, and back in those days, um, public didn't like these kinds of special sessions because they were a drain on the Treasury. They cost money right? and, and were seen to be driving up taxes. And so Norbeck knew that. Mm-hmm. His argument that there was a special session was needed to allow men who were away to vote in the state election. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was the moral imperative. They said this absolutely has to be done. Okay. When they called the special session, then they started talking. Then they started passing all these things that were things that were in the NPL program. You know, a twine plant, uh, money for highways, rural credits, right. and kind of the tag on was suffrage. Oh, okay, things that don't exist anymore were more important at the mm-hmm. time, and then the thing. <laughs> That's ironic. Well, well, one last thing I wanted to. Uh, chat with you about us. You do research about Canadian politics along these same lines in the same era as well. What's the biggest distinction between these two nations, the United States and Canada, as they look at this issue of women's suffrage? Well, in the work that I'm looking at, looking back, um, comparing uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, and then Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, is actually that that there's greater similarity and, and greater connections I think, than people otherwise would realize. 
the suffragists were actually fairly well connected in the sense that they knew what was going on in those different jurisdictions, and they were aware of how things were proceeding in, in the different places. Um, and at the same time, in parallel, there was also um, prohibition movements in, in all of those areas, and the Nonpartisan League was also operating uh, not only in South Dakota and North Dakota, but also in Saskatchewan and Alberta. Mm. And so there was, mm. there was a lot of parallels. And again, with the, the Nonpartisan League, um, they, they knew the cross-border influences were very significant. They knew what was going on. They were in touch with their compatriots across the border. And so the, um, the separation of those national stories, when you, when you look at the regional level, in that period of time, is much less notable than one might uh, one might have expected. Okay, so is is Pyle in Huron, South Dakota, writing to the people in Saskatchewan and checking in with how they're doing, or is she? Yeah, well, she um, she wasn't, but they did they did have visit people who who would be visiting the same you know the same places. Okay, I mean she was she was very. Um, uh, she was very stationary, focused on South Dakota. Right. But they certainly had speakers that were moving around, mm-hmm. um, and they were certainly aware of developments elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And and my overall argument that I'm building towards, I think, is that the the argument that it was when when existing uh, governments were under electoral threat that that they then considered. Um, suffrage as, as a political solution to their immediate political problems. Mm-hmm. And that seems very clear in the Alberta case, which in some ways seems very, um, very similar to the, to the South Dakota case in that, you know, in that the, the governing party became supportive of suffrage because it was being challenged by, uh, literally by the NPL, which would later become the United Farmers of Alberta and actually take power oh. in 1921. Okay, okay. So, well, maybe we should back up a little bit. Can you briefly just describe what the NPL was in South Dakota and what what's happened to it? Yeah, so the non the nonpartisan league was sort of um, it was the brainchild of Arthur Townley, mm-hmm. and the idea, the basic fundamental idea, was that the old machine parties mm-hmm. were basically in collusion and that they were um, operating sort of contrary to the interests of of regular people, primarily farmers. And so it really was a populist movement uh, in, in the conventional, or kind of um, as understood at that time. Right. And, uh, yeah, and so it was a, a sort of an outside, outside challenge to the existing parties. And basically one of the, one of the organizers, uh, one of the suffrage organi- national suffrage organizers in South Dakota argued almost, you know, sort of in parallel, that the old parties were in collusion and that they were their, their support for suffrage was to protect themselves from this populist challenge, um, but that they, that they did not give, as the article is entitled, they didn't give a tinker's damn mm-hmm. about whether suffrage passed or not. It was, they just wanted to protect themselves electorally. And that kind of concern about collusion uh, between the existing parties really was um, that was at the heart of the nonpartisan league, which wanted to um, get away from um, you know the standard 
the traditional uh, right. par- political party uh, division and somehow overcome that with um, you know a, a political movement that was uh, that would represent the interests primarily of farmers right um, one aspect we've touched on a little bit but I think I'd like to go a little bit deeper into it is the tension between the national suffrage leaders across time from the 1870s uh, well and as, as Dakota Territory starts it's a debate it's a point of debate locally as well within the territory and then ultimately within the state um, and ultimately there's a break there's kind of a uh, a feisty divorce that goes on between the national leaders and the state leaders and uh, I wonder if you could walk through some of the tensions there between the between the national and the state, uh, and it strikes me that there's a lot of parallels between South Dakota attitudes today. We right. don't need the national boys showing up here telling us how to do things. We can get this across ourselves. What? And that was absolutely um, by the end uh, by the end of the 1918 suffrage campaign. That was absolutely the point of this of the state officials who said we just don't need these. Um, and, you know, Pyle wrote, these people who always think they know, you know, they know best, coming and telling us what to do in South Dakota. Right. And so, but there was a whole range of differences. The first, the, the sort of strategic difference as it emerged in 1918 was that the state leadership really just wanted to focus on war work mm-hmm. and argue that women were making a contribution to the war effort, and as a result, they deserved the vote. Mm-hmm. And Carrie Chapman Cat was she was very dismissive of that strategy. She felt she said women getting the vote by doing women's work. You know the psychology of that is hugely unimpressive, and and that did not sit well with especially with uh, with Mamie Pyle. Uh-huh. On top of that, they had very significant sort of tactical tactical differences. The um, the national organizers were, you know, they were modern, they were very professional, and they, they felt that the state leadership was uh, very traditional and focused on a volunteer-based approach. Right. So, you know, for example, uh, Carrie Chapman Catt wanted a professionalized, and, and she was very involved. This is about South Dakota specifically. And mm-hmm. She writes to South Dakota and says, you need a professionalized press department. Somebody to be your press secretary. You can't have Ruth Hipple be your voluntary press department. Mm-hmm. And Pyle just didn't believe that. She just she didn't believe that press work mattered much, and she didn't ma- think that the press mattered much. Mm-hmm. And that was those you know those were very big differences in terms of tactics. But the fundamental, I think there was a fundamental underlying philosophical difference, and I think it is rooted in in that. The state suffrage leadership, I think, deeply believed that the male legislators and voters of South Dakota would do what was right if they could just be made to see the moral justness of female suffrage. Mm-hmm. The national leadership did not believe that. They, were, they saw themselves as being political realists, being political pragmatists, and they did not believe that males who held privileged political power would just give it away. And so, you know, Pyle, when when she she finds out that that um, female suffrage is going to be linked to alien disenfranchisement, mm-hmm. she rushes to Pierre from here on, because 
you know, all of the national and state people believe this is the death knell for female suffrage. Mm -hmm. And when she gets there, she realizes that the person pushing it is Governor Norbeck. Mm -hmm. And and she, you know, she believes that he's a friend of suffrage. She thinks, you know, she believes he's personally committed to suffrage. And she believes that outweighs any political motives, ulterior political motives that he might have had, mm -hmm. and that he was just tacking women's suffrage on to alien disenfranchisement to make sure that women's suffrage passed. Yeah. You know, and the national organizers were just aghast. Um, they just could not believe, you know, they could not accept that interpretation. And they absolutely believed that, that, the, um, that the state politicians were, were manipulating uh, the issue for their own electoral ends. Mm -hmm. But then it passes. And but then it passes. So it's, yeah, it's not <laughs> so as if there's a... So in the immediate aftermath, then, uh, who so kind of... Right. Uh, Had they done it differently, who knows? Right. You know, there's an old saying, success has many fathers. In this case, success yeah. has many mothers. Who who are the mothers who were saying in the aftermath of the election, hey, we did it, and I should take the credit for that? Who was it? Was well, the national folks so the, doing I, that? Everybody tries to take credit for them, right. which is not surprising. Right. And so by, um, by the time that... that uh, Carrie Chapman Catt and and her alter ego, Nettie Schuler, write kind of the history of female suffrage. You know, this is about five years after the fact. Mm -hmm. They basically say, well, it was the idea of the suffragists to link um, female suffrage with alien disenfranchisement in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. uh, Maria uh, McMahon, who was the she was the ranking uh, NASA field officer in South Dakota, says, you know, it was our faithful little band of, of uh, national workers and, and field agents and the, and the state people who worked together so tightly to, to, get, this, um, to get this passed. And yet, you know, the, the end of the campaign in 1918 couldn't have ended more disastrously. Basically, the, um, the entire staff of of national junior uh, field organizers essentially went on strike in South Dakota. Oh. And neither the national officers or even the state officials could locate them. They didn't even know where they were, much less whether they were still working. And this is, you know, with a month to go to the election. Um, Just because they were so but, mad you know, about the immigration piece. They, they, no, they weren't. This was oh. all personal. Oh, okay. And, and it started as an internal spat between McMahon as the, as the ranking national officer and these junior mm -hmm. uh, organizers. And then, and then uh, Pyle kind of gets involved um, on, on McMahon's side, but it, it ends up being a total fiasco. Yeah. And, um, and, but to write you know, the, the subsequent histories about the faithful little band that worked together so tightly uh, was just not close to being historically accurate, right? And nor was nor was the Cat and Schuler history that suggests that it was the suffragists that urged the linking uh -huh. of suffrage and alien disenfranchisement because they were absolutely blindsided by it. Yeah. And you know the McMahon in in South Dakota, um, you know her her first reaction when she first heard about it is she wired Carrie Chapman Cat and said we should ask for the entire amendment to be withdrawn because otherwise we're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And 
but five years later, they say, well, that's what we were asking for. <laughs> it would win. Right, right. Well, in, in my own studies and reading and, and teaching and so forth, I've often uh, dwelled a long time about um, human liberty and freedom and different definitions of those terms, and I, I see themes that range across time in this discussion with you today, all the way back to Solon, widening the voter base, so perhaps, we don't know, because the sources aren't so great in our ancient Greek, but perhaps uh, right. uh, bringing that up, and then also soldiers com uh, participating in the national crisis, uh, fighting for their nation in war, whether you're men or women or not, that brings you in, or at least... Uh, gives you a sympathetic eye to uh, participate in voting um, because of your courage and your participation when, when <clears throat> the nation needed you. And so there's a lot of similar themes that go all the way back to 4th century B.C., if you, <laughs> right. if you will indulge me a little bit. Well, Jerry, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I, I uh, appreciated your article when I read it. I just thought the, the intrigue was was uh, fascinating, and now you'll probably send me scurrying into Norbeck's papers to see if there's some <laughs> something that you might have missed that's the smoking... Yes, and there there could be, and, yeah. and now, it's, as it always is with historical research, once you're done, you almost feel like starting again, right? because you have a much clearer sense of, um, you know, what those critical points were and, and what, you know, the needle in the haystack that you're looking for. Right. Um Right. But it is, you know, it's an absolutely fascinating story. Right. And it's a stage set with these, these fascinating cast of characters. Mm -hmm. that, and, and as the dynamics unfold between all of them, um, as you say, the intrigues are, um, are you know, intriguing, yeah. fascinating. <laughs> and, um, and there is a lot, as you say, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Well, Jerry, thanks a lot for joining us on History 605 today. You, you've, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it very much. Well, it's always, you know, it's a real privilege to have, uh, have an opportunity to talk about your research. So mm -hmm. I'm very glad that, uh, uh, that you invited me. And, uh, and I hope um, people who are interested get a chance to take a look at the article and the entire, that entire um, a special issue celebrating women's suffrage from the South Dakota History Journal. Right, and you bring up the point I wanted to make, that uh, the journal comes along with membership. So you, if you are not a member of the Historical Society with membership uh, for uh, a nominal fee of $50 a year, you get four issues of the journal, and uh, you can have access to great articles like this. So thanks a lot. And it's, yeah, it's certainly a great journal. Well, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner of the 605 podcast, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, we'd like to thank you, our listener to the show. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll share on social media and tell your friends about us. Now go do some history. <laughs> <laughs>